When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Social Security is one of the most complex and confusing federal programs. With over 2,700 rules, it's no wonder that we're confused about when and how to start collecting and who to turn to for help. Welcome to Social Security Answers from the Experts, hosted by Martha Shedden. In this podcast series, Martha meets with professionals to provide you with the answers to questions about this most important financial decision. And now, here's your host, President and co-founder of the National Association of Registered Social Security Analysts, Martha Shedden. So welcome to our podcast. I'm Martha Shedden, and today I have a very special guest with me on the show, Alicia Minnell. Alicia is an economist and the Peter F. Drucker Professor of Management Sciences at Boston College's Carroll School of Management. Since 1997, she has been a professor at Boston College and director of its Center for Retirement Research and is a columnist for Market Watch. Educated at Wellesley College, Boston University, and Harvard, Alicia spent 20 years and is an economist at the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston, where she researched wealth, savings, and retirement among American workers. In the Clinton administration, she served as Assistant Secretary of the Treasury for Economic Policy and was a member of the Council of Economic Advisors. Alicia was also co-founder and first president of the National Academy of Social Insurance. Alicia, I'm so pleased to have you on the show. Oh, I'm delighted to be here, Martha. Let's start at the beginning. I'd, I'd like to know what inspired you so long ago to study economics and to be so interested in retirement research. <laughs> this question has come up recently in another context. When I was growing up, I, um, I guess I must have been smart enough in school, but I certainly wasn't interested in school. I was mainly interested in parties and boys. And oh. so, <laughs> but I did get into Wellesley. Um, and I remember meeting with the dean in my sophomore year, and she was asking me what I wanted to major in. And I was a little flip at the time I said, I major in history. She said, well, you're a sophomore. This is your first first course. I said, how about philosophy? And she said, they only take a small number of people, and I don't think they're going to take you. I said, all right, well, I'll major in math. And she said, well, you just didn't do very well on a calculus exam. And I said, fine. A major in economics. And so it was settled. <laughs> and so, oh and she, she essentially said, they'll take anybody. <laughs> so that's how I got into economics. And then I went to Brookings in Washington um, after I graduated and as a research assistant and was uh, worked on a book on social security and then went to Harvard to get a PhD and actually wrote my thesis on social security. I think I like big piles of money is what I like. Yeah. <laughs> I can relate to that. <laughs> well, that explains it all. Um, in your various career positions, you've been able to personally influence really top political decision makers. And when it comes to Social Security and the way that the government addresses retirement, do you feel that the Center for uh, Retirement Research's studies 
make a high level impact on policy? I think you'd have to be awfully smug to think that something you write has a direct impact. But I do feel that we repeat messages over year after year, over decades, like working longer is a good way to have a secure retirement. And and I think people do listen and we very supportive of the social security system itself and the importance of saving through retirement plans and, um, working as long as I said, as long as possible. And so I think all those thoughts get into the mainstream uh, sort of ethos somehow. And I hope we contribute to sort of sensible recommendations. It just takes t- over time. If we keep <laughs> repeating it, they'll listen. <laughs> I think I think that's right. You don't write one article thinking you ought to do it this way and the world spin yeah. towards your direction. Yeah, well, I know you have a huge amount of influence And you recently wrote an opinion piece on Social Security being the nation's most valuable program. Congress needs to fix it. Can you explain your perspective and what do you feel makes it the most valuable program in the country? So first of all, it's a social insurance program. Mm -hmm. Uh, People have written that programs for poor people are generally poor programs. Programs for everyone are well-designed. So we all pay into social security and then we all get some benefits out of it. And that means that it's designed uh, in a way that keeps it up to date over time with the growth of wages, uh, keeps benefits up to date after retirement with growth in prices. Uh, It provides for benefits for families. It really meets the needs of Americans in terms of serving as a base of retirement income. And do you think that there's currently the political will to fix it or will that not happen like it did in the 80s and until we're on the brink of losing benefits in the 2030s? I can't believe any politician wants to be responsible for people seeing a 20% cut in their benefits. And so I think the politicians have a strong interest in solving this problem, but it's not clear how far in advance of the precipice uh, they're going to take some action. And I wish they would do it sooner rather than later, just because um, it would give everybody peace of mind. I think when these trustees report come out each year saying that the trust fund is going to be depleted in 2033, 34, uh, that it makes people nervous that they're not going to really get their benefits and, or that pushes them into, in fact, we just did a study recently, pushes them into retiring uh, earlier than they they should otherwise, because they feel like if they're, you know, under the gate, um, they'll be in and may not be exposed to these benefit cuts. So there's nothing but destructive uh, fallout from having this sort of financial precipice in the future. And I wish more than anything that Congress would, would address it. It gets worse and worse each year. Well, we just, we just get close. I mean, we have promised benefits that exceed revenues. And right. right now we have a pile of money that we're using to bridge that gap. And pretty soon that pile of money runs out in the early 2030s. And so you're going to have this gap between benefits and money on hand. And the only, by law, Social Security can't pay out benefits with if it doesn't have the the funds and so it'll be forced into cutting benefits yeah 
I know all the clients I work with when I'm helping them with their social security claiming decision, that's, that's a big fear that it won't be there for them. And their response to that to claim early is not, is not good, but there's only so much I can do to, to calm their fears. I feel the program's been around 86 years and with all the amendments and changes we've had that they'll be made, but it is, it's pretty nerve wracking. No, that's my sense too. I mean, I feel like this program is too important and too Mm -hmm. popular. I think older people like it. Younger people appreciate what it does for their parents and grandparents. I think Republicans like it. I think Democrats like it. Um, I think everyone supports it and is really willing to pay for um, what is needed to keep benefits at roughly their current level. Right. Um, Back in 2014, when you wrote the book, Falling Short, The Coming Retirement Crisis and What to Do About It, now it's been seven years. Do you see a change since then? Not really. I mean, that started with we needed to fix Social Security. Then it said in terms of private retirement, we need to extend coverage, which we've made little progress on through uh, state programs, and that we needed to make 401ks fully automatic. And there's some in secure the upcoming legislation. There's some proposals to do that, at least for new plans. Uh Uh, I wish that the House could play a more prominent part in terms of retirement planning. And um, I do see some progress in terms of before the pandemic, uh, people working longer that I think they do recognize the beneficial effects of that. I mean, it's you, you get a higher social security benefit, your 401k plan's a little bigger. Uh, you don't have as many years in which to have to support yourself with your savings. And so I think that their most progress has been made there. We still have to do these other two things. We need social security's financings to be sorted out and we need to have, everybody needs some second tier of retirement savings. That And that was my next question. I saw your interview back in 2012 with, uh, I think it's pronounced the Ceridian Corporation, that podcast that you mentioned that fixing Social Security, making 401k systems work better, that everyone needs to be covered and making sure people recognize their house as a major retirement asset. So there's two parts to that. I'm I'm a huge proponent of uh, home equity conversion mortgages. And I try to educate my clients on those, but since they're known, they're reverse mortgages, they're just, they seem to be just summarily uh, ignored and people are afraid of them. Yeah, that's my, that's my experience too. People, it, I don't know quite how I, they work. I don't really understand what they are, but I don't like them. That's exactly. <laughs> that's yes. And it's, it's so sad because um, and they recently rolled one out for 55 and up. There's one company that offers those. So, but they're a retirement tool. They start when you're 62 years old or 55. And so that's, uh, many of us have a huge amount of equity in our homes that could be used. And they're, the way they're designed now and insured is, is wonderful. But on the topic of 401k, Covering everyone. Can I, with that. can I just go back for one second? To oh, yes. Because in 
Massachusetts, we have very high property taxes. And so uh, one thing that we have been trying to argue for here is a broad property tax deferral program. So basically, if you were 65 and you got your property tax bill, you could simply check a box and say, I don't want to pay my property taxes. And that would put a lot of money into hands of people that they could use for heat and you know, medical care and all this other stuff. And then when they move or sell their house, they could then, the loan to the government would be repaid with interest. It's complicated. There's sort of general feeling of enthusiasm, but, and there's this modest program like this already in Massachusetts, but really for very, very um, people with very low incomes. But I think it'd be a great program for everyone, for middle-income people. Exactly, because even um, reverse mortgages, you still have to pay your property taxes and insurance. Yeah. And to, to uh, link that into the reverse mortgage or to... Oh, you know, I don't know if I do all that. <laughs> well, have, well, to have I, I, it be paid I, off with... Is I, that I, you're I, suggesting that when they sold the house... Or, or died, then the loan would be paid off. Right. It's complicated to mess it in with a... It is. That's a huge problem. And here in California, our property tax is limited to a 2% increase. But then if you you go and buy a new house, it resets really, really high. So I don't know. It's We got to consider all these things, I think. I As far as the 401k, um, if those were required, if employers were, you know, if employees were automatically enrolled in those. Do you see those as sort of a replacement for the old defined benefit pension plans that we have? I mean, that has basically disappeared. It's certainly, they certainly have disappeared from the private sector. They still exist at the state local level. Right. But I think that I don't think we can go back to them in the private sector because they put all the risks and responsibilities on the employer. And that doesn't make sense. Um, On the other hand, these 401ks put all the risk and responsibilities on the employee. But at least it means that if people join, they do have some assets when they approach retirement. And I would like to see everybody automatically enrolled um, in these plans. And that's what initiatives in California, Oregon, and Illinois do, they say, if you're an employer and you don't provide a plan for your employees, you have to automatically enroll them in an IRA and make contributions through the payroll to their IRA account. And like 401ks, people can opt out of this program, but at least there's an automatic mechanism that puts them where they need to be. And for lower income people, these IRAs are set up as Roth IRAs so that if they get in trouble and their car breaks down or they need a new roof, they, they can get their own contributions from these plans without penalty. And I think having just some cash so you don't feel right up against it would be so helpful for, for many households. Oh, for sure. And it's better to uh, enroll and have to opt out than they have to opt in. Oh, and the opting it's in, it's, see, we're not good opt-inders. We need to be put where we're supposed to be. And then if we really don't like it, uh, be forced to choose to get out. Yeah. We're not good savers. The whole individual um, retirement plan is not working like it was supposed to, I don't think. 
Um, at that time, also, you stated that half of households, this is back in 2012, will not be able to maintain their current standard of living. Um, besides saving more, what else can people do to make sure their living standard continues? I think we touched on that a little bit. And that is that your options really are save more, consume at a lower level in retirement, or work longer, or some combination of all three. But working longer seems like the most plausible and uh, accessible, achievable of, of because especially if you plan in your 50s, you make clear to your employer that you're going to be there for the next 15 years that you want to be considered for promotion and or new jobs or more training, that makes it a, a realistic option for you to keep working at up to at least 67. So you get your maximum benefit or at least 67. So you get your full benefit and maybe to 70 if you can't. Mm-hmm. People always, I have a post who say, you know, there's some people who can't do this. They don't, they have horrible jobs. Right. They have health problems. They have this, they have that. I totally recognize that. And those people can't do it. But I'm talking to the vast majority of people who really can. Yes. And we're living so much longer, 20 to 30 years we have to fund in our retirement. So that just just reducing five or five or more of those years is is a huge benefit. Yeah. Um, it's way different than back when Social Security started and the average life expectancy was in the six, you know, upper sixties. So it was in it was in the upper sixties, but if you that's because so many babies died young. So if you got to 65, you live for another 12 years. It was in the upper 70s. Yeah. Yeah. Early in your career, when you worked at the Federal Reserve Bank at, in Boston, um, can you tell us about at that time you were advocating for taxing benefits and contributions, <laughs> private pension plans? Oh, yes. So that is was- that very outdated. I know that affected your appointment to one of your career positions later. Yes, I did several things that affected the appointments to my career positions. Um, <laughs> So we tax, this was aimed at the old fashioned defined benefit pension plan. And we tax that on a deferred basis. So um, you put your money in or your employer puts your money in, you earn the income tax free, and then you tax the money when it comes out. That's a big benefit to individuals. And the question is, were people saving more because of that? And um, my sense of things, um, based on other research, they weren't, but it was costing the government a lot of money. And I thought, well, let's change that taxation. And so then there was some group that formed themselves and sort of chased me around the country. And then <laughs> there was a New York Magazine article like Alicia in Wonderland and just a lot of <laughs> general harassment. <laughs> But that was small potatoes, actually, compared to uh, a study I did on discrimination and mortgage lending, uh, where when I was at the Fed, and we actually had all these bank records, and you could just see if you took everything into account that race really did enter the decision, not because somebody got up in the morning said, I want to do something unfair to Blacks, but mainly that people treated people who were like them better. And so it was more being more favorable to whites, not being necessarily, but they came out statistically that it had a negative. Right. And so it, what you write does have an impact. On my, 
Yes, I noticed that. And that that housing issue, that's that's a method of uh, generational wealth. So I think that's, that's a really and, and that's central actually to what we're talking about. I think that you know owning a home is how most people build wealth. And to the extent that whole groups are sort of excluded or limited to, you know, slow growing areas or have difficulty getting financing, that really impedes um, the growth of household wealth over time. Right, right. Um, Well, I recently, you know, I'm writing this course, and I've looked at all the proposals for uh, improving social security. And one of them did mention taxing. You're probably more aware of it than I am, but taxing, I thought it was pensions and having that money contribute to the social security trust fund. There's sort of a, uh, a cookbook of yes. all the proposals that have ever been put together that the social security actuaries update each year. And, yes. put, and certainly on the revenue side, I think one of the things that people, I mean, first of all, just let me say on my view, all the solutions should be on uh, putting more money into the program. I don't think the uh, benefits are too generous. I don't think they can no. be cut back. And so I, like everybody else, am always thinking of, you know, new ways to raise revenues. But just even the conventional ways is just you raise the tax a little bit, which is off the table right now because um, the president has said not to raise taxes on, he's committed to not raising taxes on households with incomes under 400000 So even increasing the payroll tax rate is kind of not a general option, but I would increase it a little bit. And then um, just also increase the tax base. And one way to increase the tax base is to include employer contributions to um, health plans. That's what it was. I, that's yeah. what I thought you were thinking of. Yeah. So I think that's a great idea because that is a way that your employer compensates you and why not right. put it in, in the compensation package and in the payroll tax um, base. Yeah. Well, and the, the proposal by... Um, Larson right now, it's it's such a minute um, raise that he's proposing of a tenth of a percent per year for many years. I liked the old Larson bill a lot. I really think it made a huge, I mean, it was aimed at closing the entire financing gap, which right. has gotten a little bit bigger over time. But I'm not sure what they can do in this political environment yeah. When the commitments been made not to raise taxes on those with incomes yeah. under four hundred thousand, it's sad. It shouldn't be so political. It's um... not on this thing. This is really not uh, liberal versus conservative. This is not Republican versus Democrat. Yeah. This is not old versus young. This is everybody. So I think I've covered everything I wanted to talk to you about because I was going to ask you what you what provisions do you favor to keep Social Security solvent, and it sounds like. Um, increasing the the taxation in one way or another. Yeah, in raising um, the base, increasing the rate. I mean, we've also written some stuff about putting equities in the, the trust fund. This would probably not be the, at this peak of the market, would probably not be the time that I would start that. We have some plans that sort of, the, to separate out sort of the legacy costs and maybe pay for that some other way, but all things on the on the revenue side. Yeah. Well, that's good to know. And I'm 
I don't know. When I look at that list and I see the amount that that would uh, decrease the shortfall, it's surprising how some of them have just a very minor effect, but others are really, really significant. And I was surprised actually, because I'm kind of a proponent for increasing the maximum taxable earnings. Yes, I am too. You only have to do a little, if if you put in health, retiree health insurance, and then you put in, um, I mean, not, not retiree, all health insurance, and then you increase the max somewhat, and then you increase the rate somewhat, you get a lot of money. Um, without anything dramatic on any front. Yeah, there's 170 million people working. (laughs) And the the maximum taxable uh, earnings was set to be to represent, I think it was 80% of the workers, or 90%. But it only now represents 80, something like that. Yes. And it has not gone up as much as as income has. Um, So well, it's been so enjoyable to talk to you. Where, where would you suggest um, that our listeners go uh, to learn more about your work? Would it just would it be the oh, come to go on CRR uh, Center for Retirement Research at Boston College, and we have a website that has all our stuff there. We have blogs, we have briefs. We we really care about communicating with the public, with business people, with uh, congressional staffs. So it's not just writing academic papers that come out in journals three years later. So yeah. I think people would really like our, our website and enjoy it. I love your website. I use it a lot. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Well, thank you so much, Alicia. I'm just really happy to have you on the podcast. And I know our listeners will enjoy, enjoy this uh, episode. Nice to talk to you, Martha. Thank you. Bye-bye.